Welcome to week two of Quanticamp, brought to you by Quantitude, the podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. This is not the kind of summer camp with s'mores. This is Quanticamp. The only s'more will be us kicking s'more of your research butt. In our second week of training, we will discuss how to choose journals for your quantitative work. By the end of this week, you will have identified a small focused number of journals you will target for your quantitative work. Now fall in. If it's not too much trouble, I mean. So Greg, your best guess, when do you think we first met? I would say 15-ish, 14 15 years ago, face-to-face. That was 2005, maybe? Yeah, roughly. Mm -hmm. Why I ask is I've got a story to tell you, and I figured this out late last Mm -hmm. night. My wife and I have a commitment to each other to not surprise one another. I don't like to be surprised, Mm -hmm. and I don't like to surprise other people. And we actually have a promise to one another, no surprise parties, (laughs) no surprise anything. Okay. All right. And so this is not intended as a gotcha surprise, but a neuron randomly fired about a story you told last episode. It got me thinking, and I just want to puzzle through this with you. Now, to begin, I am going to play the part of the story just to prime Uh it again. Okay. All All right. I'm sweating a tiny bit. Like I said, it's not a got ya. It's more a uh, holy crap, that's weird. Okay. All right. Okay. Here's a distilled part of what you told in the last okay. episode. A number of years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago now, I was just writing what was a kind of small paper, I would say, on effect size measures in latent means models, which was not rocket science. It was just importing some of the measured variable effect sizes into the latent world. And one of the reviewers said it would be really nice if you could link this to power. I really wanted to write back that it's beyond the scope of this paper, but I took some time to actually try to work through it. When I say I took some time, I mean a couple of months. Out of that grew an interest in construct reliability or replicability. So many things for me came from one comment from reviewer two. So that's a distillation (laughs) of the story. Okay. Now, while you were telling the story Uh in real time when we were recording, I had a thought to myself of, I am familiar with this paper, and I just assumed I had read it. You and I have lots of overlap in our Uh research interests. I had a memory, and I dug back in a hard drive. I found a Word document dated April 22nd, 1999. All right, so this document (laughs) can legally drink. All right, and I'm going to excerpt it. Uh Uh-huh, oh boy. It says, review of MS number PM99-710, title, latent effect size measures for structured means modeling and mimic approaches to hypothesis testing of latent construct means. Oh, boy. Okay, this eclipses beyond (laughs) the word. All right, so again... This is 21 years ago. The current paper proposes methods for estimating effect sizes for latent variable models involving mean structure. I felt the paper was well-organized and well-written, the logic was straightforward and easy to follow, and the proposed methods were well-articulated. My primary concern, however, is one of scope. You're rocking back and forth. People can't see this. Let me make the bad man go away. (laughs) (laughs) The methods for estimating effect size proposed here are direct and straightforward extensions of Cohen's techniques applied to latent variable models. Although I do believe this to be an important topic as our field attempts to move beyond simple p-values, the techniques proposed here are only a slight adaptation of methods for measured variables. Granted, I'm not aware of a published citation that justifies these effect size calculations with latent variables, but I've not really felt the need for such a citation, given the straightforward calculation. This is not to say that further extensions in this area would not be of key interest. Despite the importance of computing effect sizes, I think that a necessary extension of this relates to power. Although I feel very positively about the manuscript, I believe these topics could be extended to make a greater contribution. <laughs> are, you, are you done yet? <laughs> it just freaks me out. That was 21 years ago. 
And it predated when we had ever even met or talked in person by at least six years. And in that story, I was reviewer too. <clears throat> I have so many competing emotions right now. <laughs> I, I simultaneously want to drive to North Carolina and punch you and then hug you. But punch first. You always punch <laughs> yeah, first yeah, you gotta, because that's when they least yeah, expect yeah. it. This is just spooky. So the words that you just said, you know, I read those and I was like, it's very easy for reviewer two to say, you know, you might think about attaching this to power. It was a crap ton of work to do. <laughs> so you just pull this comment straight out of your butt. And then I have to deal with this. And I could not be happier that I did this. It is hilarious that it is you. I, I, did you feel sharp groin pains for several months? Because I was working that voodoo doll over with the pins uh, pretty hard. It's hard because there's a pretty high baseline of sharp <laughs> groin pains for me anyway. And so not really, to be completely honest. This is an amazing lesson, really. Can you... Hold for just a minute. I want to pull something up too. So maybe in post-processing, you pop in some elevator music or, oh, 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 so there's a scene in the Blues Brothers, chaotic scene at the end when all kinds of things are going on and then they get in an elevator. The girl from Ipanema is playing on in, in the elevator or something. Oh, the police on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And then Right. Give me a second. I need to go look something up and then I'm going to be right back. Okay. Okay, I am back. So what I've done is I have pulled up just a quick measure or, or data on the impact of what you pulled out of your butt. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Psychometrica, British Journal of Mathematical and Statistical Psychology, Multivariate Behavioral Research, Educational and Psychological Measurement, Journal of Personality Assessment, Psychological Methods, Educational Measurement Issues and Practice, Measurement Interdisciplinary Research and Perspectives. Four book chapters. All of that came out of your comment. The tentacles that your comment had are massive. And it's, this is just a crazy rare opportunity to look the person in the eye and to be able to measure the impact of this. And one of the biggest things for me that came out of this is in that Psychometrica paper, I had to work through a tremendous amount of mathematics. And in the middle of it all came out this measure of construct reliability that I had no intention of mm. stumbling upon. So stuff that I worked on around what came to be called coefficient H because of a comment that my then three-year-old daughter had given. <laughs> all of this stuff came out. It's just easily the most influential comment of any review that I have had. At the end of the day, I will thank you. And I'm really... <laughs> I'm really glad it's you. <laughs> so I so appreciate those sentiments. But it's also kind of funny because at the same time, I said, it would be interesting to see how this extended to power. I also think the work could be improved by resolving cold fusion, <laughs> time travel, and eradicating cancer. Right? I mean, it's like... <laughs> Dude, I was probably on my third beer uh, on a Southwest flight <laughs> trying to get this off my to-do list. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it is funny looking back, though, because to look at a review 21 years later, mm -hmm. I'm pleased that I'm able to share it with you because I wasn't a wiener, right? There was one yeah. little bitchy line in it that I'm sure did not escape you. Uh -huh. About that I'm, I wasn't aware of a published citation, yeah. but that but I never really felt there was a need, need for, for one. Yeah. <laughs> Mine falls more firmly on the, what a weird universe. Crazy. The H thing from your three-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. Two nights ago, I texted your 23-year-old mm -hmm. daughter a picture of a plate of sushi mm -hmm. I made. Mm -hmm. Because she and I exchange recipes. Yes. She sent me her bang bang tofu uh -huh. recipe and I sent her a picture of my sushi. It's just weird. It's, Can we just leave off with that it's just weird? It's a lovely tie back to last time and I'm just going to feel a glow uh, about this. This is wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad well, that's the neuron fire. Okay, so that brings us to today. Mm -hmm. 
I am going to show my commitment to the podcast mm-hmm. and say that I have an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper really? with notes written Is there a sticky on, it. on the back of it? Oh, this episode is going to suck. Oh, man. I don't have a sticky on the back okay. of it. All right. It's still scribbled by hand, and I did it on the back deck. And I like sitting in the dark, so there's a lot of writing that is over each other because I was trying to make notes in the dark. But I just wanted to share my significant commitment to the podcast by saying I used a sheet of paper today. Wow, this is huge. The heading that I wrote, it has a little scribble, and if I can read it, it says crafting a paper for an outlet. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what that means. Okay. Okay. Uh, Do you want to help us? Well, sure. One interpretation of that is that last time we had talked about coming up with a quantitative idea, which means a variety of things to people in our listening audience. And I think today maybe we should talk about outlets for those ideas. And outlets for those ideas probably primarily includes journals. Of course, it, it can include other types of outlets as well, but maybe it would behoove us to try to focus on what kinds of things go into the decision-making process about choosing a journal uh, as an outlet and ways you think about that and then maybe even crafting your work or helping your idea mature in a direction that's consistent with those choices. Is that what you meant? It, that's exactly okay. <laughs> what I meant. And so I'm glad that you, sure. you I, agree I, with. I speak, Patrick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we're like work spouses where you tell me what I'm thinking and feeling. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, yes, thank you. Well, actually, you tell me what you're thinking and feeling, and I tell you that's not actually what you're thinking and feeling. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all getting edited out. Okay. <laughs> so where we left off was how do you get a research idea? is we had a call to arms to become a quantitative leader in your substantive field. Then we had the first week of Quanta Camp, all right, mm-hmm. with Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. <laughs> now it is you have some amorphous notion of an idea that is somehow quantitatively related that you want to share with your substantive area. I think the next thing to ponder is what kind of outlets exist for dissemination. And tell me what you think about this, because you you and I haven't talked about it. I mean, we agreed on we would talk generally about this topic beforehand, but we haven't drilled into it. I often find it a chicken and egg question. That is, it always has to start with an idea. Mm-hmm. But then do you get an idea and then pick an outlet mm-hmm. and develop your paper for that outlet? Or do you kind of raise it as a child and support it and put guardrails Mm -hmm. on it? And then when you have a final paper, you say, now, what's a logical home for this? What do you do? That's a great question. And I think there's a certain amount of iteration for me that goes on. I think that ideas, first of all, generally have better homes in some places than others, depending on a particular idea. So if you have an idea in, let's just say, uh, growth modeling. There are certain journals that don't tend to gravitate toward those types of things, other journals that do tend to focus on that. So there's going to be a certain amount of triage right off the bat based on your idea. So whether that's done explicitly or not right away, I've already narrowed down the space a little bit. But after that, there's a bit of iteration that kicks in. I also think that some ideas are bigger than others. Apparently, the first thing that I submitted (laughs) 20 plus years ago was a small idea and a bit of a reach for the journal that you were reviewing for at that time. Um, But it grew. It grew. We watered it. We nurtured it. And it grew. There are some ideas that I just consider smaller ideas. And those might have a home in what I might consider more of a niche. Do we say niche or niche? I don't know. In in a small boutique uh, journal, a, a small. Oh route. yeah, that fixes it. <laughs> it's way better. Go from niche, niche to, to boutique. boutique. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the proper word is here. So the idea for me narrows down the space. Does that happen for you, or is that a not even a place to start? No, it's a great place to start. Whether it be niche, niche, (laughs) boutique, or whatever other French word Mm -hmm. you want to show off Uh at 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. To reiterate something that came up in last week's episode is you use the word small. Mm -hmm. 
And I do that too. I use the word small and I use the word little. And every now and then I have to walk back with grad students when I'm working with that because I will say something like that. This will make a nice small paper. It's a small idea or a little paper, but it's never meant as pejorative. When I talk about small or little, I'm using that as a synonym for focused. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of reiterate that point from last week is, you know, maybe it's better to talk about there's a focused idea or a discrete idea, not necessarily a small idea. And I got to tell you, as I go on year after year, I become more and more appreciative of small ideas. Mm Something that, you know, it's the the old in and out, nobody gets hurt. You set up a question, you talk about what we know about it, you pound some nails into the floor, you tell me one or two things I didn't know going into the paper and you're out. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that. I get more and more frustrated of being forced to work through a long, complicated manuscript to dig out the little gold nuggets that are in the pile of dirt. I have to admit that I tend to try to get an idea and then I kind of just let it be what it wants to be. So I grew up in a very liberal home. It was kind of a juxtaposition is is it was pretty hardcore Irish Catholic, Mm -hmm. which pretty much can't be more rigid Mm -hmm. and scripted. But at the same time, my parents were very, very liberal, and we spent lots of times at soup kitchens and uh, demonstrations and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things my mom did when we were young is she was wonderful, and we made this tent fort in the dining room, and we would hang sheets over the dining room table and listen to records mm, Yeah, under that. And one that here, 45 years later, I still remember was, I don't know, whatever became of her, but this woman named Marlo Thomas. That girl. She that girl? I believe she was. I did not know that. Yeah. Diamonds, daisies, snowflakes, that girl. She had an album called Free to Be You and Me. Oh, my God. (laughs) And we would play Free to Be You and Me, and it was this whole song about how Billy wanted to play with dolls and how all of this, so it was just very open. And 45 years later, when I think about a paper, I still think about this chorus of Free to Be You and Me. I let the paper just grow up in the way that it wants to be, and then I figure out what to do with it. <sighs> My mom bought me that album. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have the fort, but I, list, I put that record on our hi-fi and <laughs> and listened to it. But I felt like I had to listen to it because my mom had given it to me. It was not nearly as cool as the Partridge Family albums that I had. Hello world, in a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. <laughs> My dad got us. I think it was his attempt to offset, you know, in a little bit, the Marlo Thomas. Uh-huh. We had a whole bunch of Tom Lehrer. Oh my gosh, yes. Albums. Have you? Are you familiar All, with Tom Lehrer? Every one. Every album. Every song. <laughs> Once they go up, who <laughs> knows where they come down? It's That's not, not my, my department, department, says Werner von Braun. Says von Braun. <laughs> Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, we're not off topic okay, at all. Okay, and the freak show continues. Mm-hmm. So... Do you then, when you get an idea, yes, you think about magnitude of the idea, you think of the scope of the idea, do you, before you start putting pen to paper, pick either a specific outlet or a class of outlets Mm -hmm. and then guide your paper toward that? Mm -hmm. Or are you more permissive parenting where you wait till it's all grown up and then see? I have control issues. We might have talked about Really? <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> this just in. Greg has control <laughs> issues. Um, so I think about there as being 
uh, tiers of journals, generally speaking. And, and that's not uh, a crazy idea, right? When we have to talk about promotion and tenure, we often talk about, uh, you know, higher tier journals, lower tier mm-hmm. journals and, and all that. But when I'm thinking about a particular idea, I start to, as I said, narrow the space of journals. And then within that space, I will usually talk with when I'm collaborating, and you know, my, I'm drifting into collaborating with students because I think that's a, a big part of this process too. Mm. I will usually think about what's a good target journal, and then we will talk about is there an aspirational journal above that, and then is there a fallback journal below that. So I will usually try to identify three journals where we're in the zone, target, aspirational, and fallback. I don't know if any of that makes a damn bit of sense to you. Free to be you and me, hippie. There's a land that I see where the children are free. (laughs) It does. And in sitting on my back deck, Mm -hmm. And we live out in the woods, and man, you hear some weird sounds out in the woods when you sit out on the back deck in the pitch dark. But listening to raccoons copulating while I'm trying to write notes. How do you recognize that sound? How do you? How can you identify that? It's fun. No, don't answer that. But it was another album my mom bought. But. It's not a common critique I'll make in a review, Mm -hmm. but it's one that I occasionally will raise with a paper, which is, it's not clear to me what this paper wants to be. Mm -hmm. This notion of who are you as an individual, right? We really are talking about adolescent development and de-individuation and all of this. I've had some wonderful conversations with my 15-year-old daughters where that's almost the heart of that is some of their friends are almost trying on different personas Mm -hmm. to see how it fits and they discard it and pick up another one. I think a paper does that. Mm -hmm. Is it a rigorous empirical test of a theoretical question? Or is it primarily a substantive evaluation, but there's a quant subway jumper? Remember, Mm -hmm. we talked in a prior episode is in New York, somebody will push up against you as you're going through the turnstile and go through with you, a subway jumper. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a quant subway jumper idea where you slip something in. Is it a twofer where it's maybe equal substantive, equal quant? Or is it really a quant paper, but being driven by substance? Is it unabashedly quant where you tip your hat to where it might be applied in these different areas. Mm -hmm. On top of that is, well, is it a unique research contribution? Is it a pedagogical paper? Is it a teacher's corner paper? All of these are these personas that a paper can try on and keep or discard. And to me, choosing that persona is really important when you're thinking about an outlet. Mm -hmm. But here's my worry. I don't want to put a persona on a paper toward a targeted outlet that changes the paper in a way that it doesn't want to be. I feel like an idea has a natural developmental trajectory, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to deflect that trajectory toward a targeted outcome that maybe makes a paper something that it doesn't want to be. I I can smell your incense from here. Uh... (laughs) I okay yeah I, I don't have don't I can't really argue with that but to concretize it a little bit unlike a child your your daughter where you might let her try on different identities and hairstyles and who do I want to be and all of that a paper you probably give it a bit more of a nudge here and there. I don't know, maybe you do that with your kids also. But like, let's take a teacher's corner piece, for example. And I say teacher's corner piece because let's imagine you know that the knowledge that you want to convey is already out there. And what you would like to do is focus it um, and bring it, bring an awareness of it to certain people. So for me, then the kinds of decisions come down to, I've already identified that this is going to be not new knowledge, but it's going to be a more translational effort. And so then the kinds of things I go through as I think about the journals that are out there, I think about, well, are there journals in our field that offer teacher's corner kinds of places? Are they receptive to methodological teacher's corner kinds of things? Because there's certainly a lot of other things that can be around teacher's corner pieces. What is the level of sophistication of that particular outlet? Like, do they want appendices with code or do they want more conveying the bigger picture of these kinds of things? So I'm trying to unpack a little bit what it is you were saying. Am I anywhere near your patchouli point of view there? 
Boy, it's just SAT vocab day at the Q-Pod, huh? <laughs> I'm not arguing that you should not think at all about potential outlet, but I kind of point the ship to broad mm -hmm. points on the compass. So I'll talk to my students and say, so are we envisioning a psychological methods-like mm -hmm. paper or a psychometrica-like paper? Mm -hmm. Because those are different. Very different, yeah. Or a substantive outlet. Yeah. So I've got kind of this almost, you know, blatant class analysis <laughs> right. of more technical, more unabashedly quant, but maybe having a greater readership and accessibility mm -hmm. or going to the soldiers in the trenches mm -hmm. in a particular area to arm them to do things they're not currently able to do. But once I pick that spot on the horizon, mm -hmm. then I really quit thinking about mm -hmm. that for a while. I think maybe I don't disagree with that. I do think that those types of outlets are very different from each other. And I'm not just going to write and see which one evolves. If it's a very technical thing and I want to aim toward a psychometrica or a jazza or a biometrica or something like that, then... The writing is way different than the other outlets. It's very terse, focused, brief. I mean, whatever you write, you can just imagine the reviewer is going to come back and tell you to cut it down by half or something. So it has to be so, so focused. Whereas in other types of outlets, especially we joked about the description that you got about the paper you wrote is what Agatha Christie would have written if she'd been a quantitative right. methodologist. There are some outlets for which that is entirely appropriate. You have an ability to write to different audiences, and I've read things that you've written that are very technical, but then you also have papers that use very nice things about space elevators and phrases like we might think, and you have a way of talking more to people than to the material when you need to. And I think I think that's a really important thing for people to be able to do. decide, are they writing about the material or are they telling a story to individuals? And those are, those are very different writing styles. Well, thank you for the kind words. Yeah. I have a couple of just bullet points that are scribbled on top of each other. Mm -hmm. I've really got to get a light out there. What factors then do you use to put up guardrails to take an idea that begins to steer it toward a particular destination, whether that be a very specific journal or a journal of that type? Maybe I'll throw out one and you throw out one and I'll throw out one. Do you want to sure. just go back and forth? One might just be my ability. <laughs> there are some journals where I think rightly or wrongly that I don't know that I can really close the deal on something in that journal, that whether the idea isn't sophisticated enough or my ability as a communicator doesn't necessarily align with that. There are some journals that I just shy away from. I'm not so sure that I can, that I can do that. Where that becomes especially true also is when I'm working with a student and I want the student to take a leadership role. You know, you have to find this balance when you're mentoring people of letting them drive versus saying, oh, just get in the backseat. I got this, you know, and sure. a student isn't quite ready for a particular outlet, but they're ready to be mentored into a very, very acceptable outlet. So one of it just has to do with the skill scope and experience of the people involved. And I sometimes am the limiting factor in that. And that is, I think, one of the hardest things to do either as an advisor or for those of you who have kids as a parent, mm -hmm. is letting your kid do it themselves, knowing they're going to screw it up mm -hmm. or knowing they're not going to do it as well as you mm -hmm. would. I'm talking about children, right? Is that you've, you've got some six-year-old and there is a parenting learning process and the kid needs to figure it out themselves. Mm -hmm. I think one of, and I don't want to accidentally get into a situation where we're complimenting each other that puts both of us in very, very uncomfortable emotional spaces. Yeah. But I think you were exceptionally good at letting students drive the car mm -hmm. and providing the support that they need without just saying, oh, scoot over, I'll do it. I think that's one of the hardest things. And I'll be completely frank. I think it's a weak advisor who pushes the student over and gets behind the wheel mm -hmm. and says, oh, forget it, I'll just do it. Or they ghost write, you eviscerate the student's contributions mm -hmm. to the paper and the advisor feels all good about themselves because the student is first author, but they actually wrote the paper yeah. to begin with. There's no teaching in that. There's no guidance in that. 
One of the things that I consider is, for lack of a better term, when I'm thinking about where might this document go, is follow the money. And what I mean by that is, who are you citing? What are the existing resources that are scaffolding and motivating and supporting your work? And where did those appear? Because there are journals in which a story can be told over an arc of 10 years. Mm -hmm. Is there a common theme in multivariate behavioral research where somebody hit a ball into play and then someone else followed up on that maybe two years later? And two years after that, someone contributed something else. And that might present a very logical home to continue that broader arc of discourse through the pages of the same journal. That makes a lot of sense. And that implies that there's a certain amount of development of the project has occurred. You know what you're drawing on as other work and where those have, uh, have tended to have homes. Um, you're not going to submit a paper to a journal where you have, probably, where you have no citations whatsoever in that particular journal, uh, whether it's methodological or even applied. And if you're trying to do something translational, where you say, I'm going to do a teacher's corner piece on a method for my field that I think the method would be very useful, then of course, the methods that you'll be citing might not have come from that journal. But it's very good from a strategic standpoint to pull in examples of where the methods you're talking about are relevant to work that has occurred in your field and even more specifically in that particular journal. Well, it's interesting because it's also an approach for reviewing a manuscript. Mm -hmm. A comment that I will sometimes make is if it feels like the topic is disjointed for the journal, mm -hmm. that there's a misfit. Mm -hmm. I will myself look back in the citations and see where did the core storyline appear. And that gives me a hint as to whether, well, maybe there's an outlet that's more reasonable for this kind of work. Now I'm thinking that I've got another review from you where you made that exact comment. I'll have to... <laughs> I am no longer going to be able to do anonymous reviews because uh -huh. I only have four comments I ever make on anyone's paper, uh -huh. and I think I've given all of them away. Uh, there's enthusiasm uh, dampening. There's It doesn't matter. Stop. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. I forgot if this story came up on an earlier episode, mm -hmm. but where I got the packet of reviews after I submitted one and the decision was made and mine was there, and I thought it was perfectly reasonable. And then the second one just tore them a new <laughs> and cited me like 28 times. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, they think that I'm the hatchet that. man. Uh -huh. You failed to cite Curran's right, work here yeah. and you needed to. do. And I'm just like, oh, God, it's not me. And then maybe this is a reflection of personality. But my very first thought was, Oh, I can do that to somebody else. <laughs> you need to read 10 Hancock papers and model your presentation after me. I mean him. Uh, nice. Okay, your turn. Give me one. Yeah, well, I, just, I did want to do a little bit of expanding on what you said before I pull something off this list I didn't know I had to construct. I did see you writing I, while I was talking, Feverishly, feverishly. I know. I know. Thanks, man. When you're experiencing a disjoint as a reviewer, what that also means is that the person who has crafted the paper hasn't done a good job of making you feel like it's in the right place. So what that means to authors is that when you are writing something to in a particular journal, it's your job to make the reader understand why it's there. That means properly contextualizing that work within that field, within the methodological scope that's done within your field, within that particular journal. There are ways to do it, and there are ways that we as reviewers, we look at a paper and we go, oh, I wonder what journal this got rejected from, and then they just repackaged and set, you know, <laughs> and put over here. So you have to make the reader understand why it's in that particular home. That is a wonderful comment. And it goes back to a broader theme that we've had across a lot of episodes mm -hmm. is it's your responsibility as an author mm -hmm. to achieve these things. It's your responsibility to convey that the paper belongs in this journal. It's your mm -hmm. responsibility to give the reader mile markers as you go through the text to help them move from one idea to the other. Mm -hmm. I always shake my head at somebody who says something and you don't laugh and then they chastise you mm -hmm. for not having a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
You're blaming me for not laughing at your stupid joke? Okay, so that was a subway jumper on that my was. So, idea. So I, I mean, I have other things that I've no go for it. Down. I've seen you. I've yeah. seen you write yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's one, and I think it applies to a large segment of our audience, and that is if your field is not particularly quantitative or journals that you are particularly interested in are not especially quantitative, but you would like to help them to become that, then your thinking about where you find a home for your work should involve where do I want to plant a seed. Imagine that you have some work that you want to do that uses some methods that you just know a journal is going to go, holy crap, we don't know what to do with this. But that means that you need to take a longer view and say, well, I'm going to do a methodological piece, a teacher's corner piece, a a get-to-know-me kind of piece where I look at an analysis in different ways and show the benefits of this. You have to think about where you want to plant the seed for all the other cool things that you intend to do as a researcher and all the other cool things that you're hoping people in your field can do. And we had mentioned a number of researchers previously, people who are out there in applied fields, who wrestle with precisely that, where they want to do, let's say, instrument development in a field, but their field hasn't really wrestled formally with issues of reliability and that. So that means there are some opportunities to plant seed papers, whether teacher's corner or translational pieces, because once those get in, then you can start referring back to those pieces, and that will help you have more legitimacy to the quantitative aspects of the things that you're going to do within your applied domain. I love that, and it is completely consistent with the call to arms of becoming a quantitative leader Mm -hmm. in your field. That's the other end of the continuum of my suggestion of think about where is historically these papers appeared and the arc that they've followed. I really, really love that notion of start your own arc. Write a paper in a spirit that fosters that is maybe you compare two methods to do a particular thing and then throw out a handful of seeds at the end Mm -hmm. and say future work would do well to consider three unresolved issues Mm -hmm. give out ideas and and let other people pick up the torch and move forward i think that's a great idea i like that a lot So what do you got? All right. So I'll give you a minute to write frantically. And I'll go back to the raccoon copulation (laughs) treaties. One that I think a lot about, and forgive me for stating the obvious, we've established every episode that Mm -hmm. that that's the only way I have anything to contribute to the conversation. Something that my advisor, Lori Chasson, really hammered home, and again, all of us should think about this, but it's something sometimes I I think we forget, which is who do you want to read your paper? And why I say this is a little more dated is when Greg and I rode the buggy in to work and lit our tallow candles, we would get a paper journal in our mailbox that we subscribed to. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, you could go over to the library and they have all the journals bound on the shelves. But you would get a small subset of journals that were important to your research. And you would walk back in the hallway and flip through the table of contents and see what's new and who's doing what. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really important to say, I want to place this paper in this journal because I want this type of scientist to read my work. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to reach them. They're my targeted demographic. And I feel like the where things have gone over the last 20 years is that has been less emphasized, maybe to the detriment of building a cohesive literature. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's electronic, you go to Google Scholar, you say, find PDF. And within two or three clicks, if you're on a university system, you can get a copy of any paper ever written. Mm -hmm. So I have heard colleagues say, well, that doesn't matter anymore. I I disagree. Mm -hmm. I guess my obvious statement, but one that maybe has lost some of its obviousness over the years, is think about when you're done with your paper, who do you want to hand it to? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, when you said, who do you want to read it, I interpreted what you were going to say differently. The way I interpreted it was, who... On the editorial board, do you want to read it? Mm. So I think there are actually two tiers to what you said. One is because the first people's hands that 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 manuscript is going to be in are going to be the editorial board. And so one of the conversations I will have with colleagues is often, well, 
you you want to target that journal? Yeah, let's take a look at whose hands the paper might be in. You know, A, do they have the expertise in that particular area? B, are there people on there who have very different philosophical orientations about this kind of method? So for me, it's a two-tier. Who do I want to read it? First, it's the people on the editorial board. And then the second is the, the community that that paper is uh, is joining. And, and yes, outlets are changing. The walls among things are sort of coming down. At the same time, it means that stuff is scattered all over. Mm. What do we say? All over Hell's Half Acre, I think. Is, is, That's right. Yeah. Um, well done. Thank you. Uh, I'm trainable. So it's it's in some ways harder to keep track of all the stuff that's going on out there. It's like you have to hear about a paper to find a paper. So I do think that you're right, that we maybe should keep some of that in mind as well, even if it feels a bit old school. And I agree on the editorial board. I think if you identify a typical reader who you would like to hand your final paper to, I would hope that the journal you would choose would have an editorial board that is well-suited to adjudicate your paper to the readership. I would hope, and notice I keep using the word hope Mm -hmm. because I don't think this always holds, there's a fairly high correlation between editorial board membership and readership. And I would like to think in a perfect world those would be very, very similar. Mm -hmm. That you wouldn't have to put your wolf in sheep's clothing to get it through the editorial board so that you can sneak an idea out to the readership. But that's a more cynical view. <laughs> I think I have maybe one one left on my list or two. You know, what's interesting to me as we have this conversation is that we can't seem to talk about this topic without letting mentorship drift in. And and I think that's true on both of our parts. So one of the things that helps in the conversation about what journal it's going to go to when I'm mentoring people is what kind of outlet will help you to achieve your professional goals. Mm. When I think about students who have particular goals, especially within academia, although not necessarily within academia, I try to think, well, what level of institution are you aiming for? What do you want to bill yourself as having expertise in? What community do we need to start making more acquainted with you in terms of your professional goals? That's true of conference papers as well. But when I think about this in terms of journal outlets, I will find myself saying things like, well, you don't have a, an MBR yet. And there might be a benefit in working toward a type of paper if this is appropriate for that outlet. Or you don't have an outlet over here. And if you want to have more exposure to the educational methodological community, as opposed to the psychological methodological community, of course, there's a very strong overlap there, then maybe we should frame this paper with more education examples than psychology examples. So part of the conversation for me is what are the professional goals that are to be achieved by this? And how can we use this as a vehicle to achieve both your scholarship goals and your professional goals? I have... Nothing to add to that. I completely agree. Okay. I think there is a danger, and I think it goes back to my free to be you and me. <laughs> I do have a worry mm-hmm. at times in some situations that the tail wags the dog. Sure. And occasionally I will work with a student or a postdoc or even a junior colleague who will want to write a psychometrica paper. <laughs> doesn't matter what it's on, damn it. But. It doesn't matter what it's on. The corollary to Hell's Half Acre is hell or high water, mm-hmm. they're going to write this for psychometrica. Mm-hmm. And it is pounding a square peg into a round hole. Sure. Not often, but on occasion we'll view a paper where one of my comments will be this paper is being forced to be something that it doesn't want to be mm-hmm. and it all goes back to marlo <laughs> thomas is that i wholeheartedly agree huh? with what you said with the caveat that you're not pounding that square peg into a round hole. I grew up in Colorado and was a skier, and you would stand at the top of a really steep mogul field. I was never a particularly good skier, and my brother, who was an accomplished skier, would say, look, picture your first two turns. But after that, Mm -hmm. you just got to take them as they come. And he said, imagine I drop a tennis ball and it's going to roll down to the bottom. Just follow the tennis ball Mm -hmm. because that's going to follow the line that it wants to go. About half the time, I would end up at the bottom of the mogul field with neither (laughs) ski attached to my feet. 
But half the time I would pop out because I followed the tennis ball. And mm-hmm. I will talk to my own students of follow that ball. And if it ends up with your skis on and you're at Psychometrica, outstanding. Mm-hmm. But if you end up at the bottom and it wants to go another direction than you had intended, you need to respect the idea and the process to allow that to happen. I think that's a a wonderful point. So what else you got on your list? One that I think, again, and oh, I know, I know we are Stadler and Waldorf. Mm -hmm. And we have just not only just come to realize that, but we just Just embrace it. it. Yep, own it. We just not only accept it, but embrace it. Yeah, you never know when something funny is going to happen on this show. Did something funny happen? Yeah. You'd never know it. (laughs) I don't think anybody reads mastheads anymore. Mm. And part of it is, is we don't get the paper copy of the journal anymore. Right? The front and back materials of the journals we don't see anymore. There's really important information Mm -hmm. in those. And the two, one you've already alluded to, is who is on the editorial board. It doesn't mean they're going to get your paper to review, but I belong to a handful of editorial boards. And one of the things that I commit is I don't say no. If I'm an editorial board member and I'm asked to offer a review, I always say yes, because that's the commitment to the editorial board. It was very funny. Mark Applebaum, who has been just a dear advisor to me over a 25-year period, mm-hmm. is he was the inaugural editor of Psychological Methods, and he invited me to be on the editorial board. And being like the 12-year-old that I was, <laughs> I said, oh, I need to think about it. <laughs> and he said, absolutely. I'll tell you what. He said, you think about it and get back to me. But he said, if you're on the editorial board, I'm going to send you 12 papers a year and you're going to get a free subscription to the journal. If you're not on the editorial board, I'm going to send you 12 papers a year and you're not going to get a free subscription to the journal. And I said, I would love to be on the editorial board. And he said, I thought you would. But one is look at the editorial board membership, but more importantly, and now there are, of course, on the web pages, but you have to make a greater effort mm-hmm. to go see it. Read the masthead. Yeah. Every journal has a masthead that articulates what is the mission sure. and the goal and the purpose of the journal. I think we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I would strongly encourage people to read the mastheads of a dozen different journals. Yeah both in the quantitative area and in your own substantive work, to see what is a logical home for your adolescent that you're raising and want to send out into the world. Yeah, I like that. And what I will add is that those mastheads change over the years. At the very least, what the journal is about changes over the years. So journals go through these phases of what they think is kind of interesting to the readership. 25 years ago, I was interested in multiple comparison procedures within an ANOVA framework. And there were some journals that were very happy to have that kind of thing. The same journals aren't so interested in that. So be aware not just of the of the masthead or the journal identity as you think you know it, but but keep refreshing that. Go through the tables of contents and see, is this still something that's a viable thing there? The mantra for me generally is, is know the journals really, really well. It's a great recommendation. And I would go to the point of be a internet stalker, mm-hmm. identify who the editor is and go to their webpage yeah. and see, because the editor is the guiding light of any journal. And what kind of work do they do? What do they value? They're not going to only handpick stuff that they find interesting or not, but you can get a very clear sense of what lens Do they see the world? Mm -hmm. Be a lurker, be a stalker, and see in Journal X in your field, who is the editor and how do they approach the science of what you do? And do you believe that your work is amenable to that worldview? Let me follow up on what you said and imagine that someone has narrowed it down to a particular journal. And at some point that has to happen, right? Because you know you're Mm going to press send toward a particular journal. So what I will just say, practically speaking, ties back to what we said before, and that is 
make it look like it belongs in that journal. And that doesn't just mean the context of the writing, but that even means down to all the specific format, guidelines, everything. If the journal requires two abstracts, you know, one is a standard and the other is a translational abstract, well, do that. If that journal does not use footnotes, but endnotes, submit them as endnotes. Just from a strategy standpoint, when you have a reviewer reading that, you want them to see that paper as belonging in that journal. And when you don't pay attention to the style guidelines, the conventions of that journal, you are doing yourself a disservice. You're making it harder for them to see that as being there. So I just wanted to append that little practical note on there. For me, I think the common denominator to the whole conversation is think about your ideas raising a child. You birth an idea and then you begin to nurture it and curate it and expand it. And as any good parent, you're putting guardrails on to help move it in a particular direction. You have rules, you have expectations, but you're also allowing it to grow and develop in the way that it wants to grow and develop and channel that toward something that's maybe even over the horizon at that point of where is that ultimately going to live and have a logical home on its own. So then what it means so far for for the folks who are in QuantiCamp with us, it means that they should have started honing a particular idea. And now I would tack on to that as some version of a second assignment is to start thinking seriously about what would be appropriate outlets for that idea. And like you said earlier, outlets might be journals. They might not be journals. We've spoken mostly about journals. But start now thinking about what what the destiny for this paper might be. And you might be more like Patrick and, and let it take shape. And but, but you still should know a region of the world that you're aiming for. So I, I'd like to tack that on as something people start rolling around along with the idea as well. And I would add to that assignment, pick three or four journals in your area. And if you haven't done it already, go to the webpage, Mm -hmm. read the masthead, go to the webpage of the editor, just see what kind of work they do, read the members of the editorial board, and then look at tables of contents for the last few issues. Mm -hmm. Just thumb through them. You don't have to read every paper. You don't even have to open it. Yeah, that's great. And start to see if any of those would be a good home for this idea that you're currently nurturing as part of your QuantiCamp assignment. Yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) My wife walked into my room and I said I was working. I had the door closed and we had something come up with the kids and she came in. And I had Full Metal Jacket up on YouTube watching it. And she said, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt your work. You know those points where you just don't even mount a defense? That's right. So you left and went to the back deck and listened to raccoons (laughs) copulate. (laughs) All right, my friend. Yes. Contrary to popular belief, you and I have day jobs, and we should probably turn to that. All right. But you've got your assignment. Is your mission, should you choose to accept it? In preparation for Q Camp 3 mm-hmm. is to do what we just described, and we will talk to you in a week. Okay, thanks everybody. Take care. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. (laughs) Well, that's talent. An opera singer who tap dances and sings cowboy songs. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes, choosing what show to be on. (laughs) That was a great number. I don't care what you say. I thought it was dumb. Maybe you're right. (laughs) Oh, wonderful, wonderful. That Bernadette Peters is terrific. Now I reserve judgment. Till when? Till the pig tells me what to say. <laughs> Bernadette Peters, you can like. I loved her. Loved good, her. Good. It's the mouse you gotta hate. I hate her. Terrible mouse. Uh, rotten. Ooh. Ooh.